Thank you guys for that. If you will turn in your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 4 through 12. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 4 through 12. So as we're talking about joy today, joy incarnate, as we're looking at our last Sunday message on the celebration of the incarnation, we're going to be looking at the idea of joy. And I tell you what, anytime you seek to follow God and you're seeking to look at things and to do things, I think we've seen that in our church. There's been days where we've had things go wrong, things not happen, and Satan will come against you, try to attack you. Preaching on joy this morning, and the last 48 hours have been very anti-joy causing in my life, just different little things happening, trying to just get it, get at me, get under my skin. I'm about to go to bed one evening, and I'm in the restroom, and I look, and I hear a drip, and I look up, and there's a leak the night it rained so hard. And then this past night, Eliza just got extremely sick, and that's why they're not here this morning. She, uh, We woke up at like 4, and she could almost not breathe because she was just had so much mucus that she was dealing with. And uh, so I was up with her this morning, and and so as I'm preparing to preach on being joyful, there's a lot of things that are trying to, to pull at uh, my joy that coming into this morning. And if, if we're being honest, there's probably some of you who are in that place this morning as well. There's some, probably some of you that have had a lot that have been going, a lot of things that have been going on in your life, probably things that far exceed what I've been dealing with. Hardships, things that are, are difficult that would seek to steal your joy. But this morning we're looking in Nehemiah, and we're going to have a little bit of a background before we go into this passage. So the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were really originally one book telling the story of the exile's return to Jerusalem, the return to where they had been exiled from. So it starts with Zerubbabel who returns with exiles and begins to construct and constructs the temple which was destroyed during the exile. Then we see Ezra, who comes into the picture years later, begins to teach the Word of God, begins to call out the sin of the people of Israel. And then Nehemiah, who comes and helps lead the construction of the city walls to complete this project. And that's where we find ourselves. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the temple has been rebuilt, the exiles have returned, the Word of God has been preached to the people, and Nehemiah has helped lead the people in rebuilding the city walls that have been destroyed. And that's where we come into in Nehemiah chapter 8. The, the walls are done, the work is done, and the people are here. And they, the whole assembly is here, and they are going to look at the word of God. So we're going to read, starting in verse 4, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 4 through 12. The scribe Ezra stood on a high platform made for this purpose. Mattathiah, Shema, and Ananiah... Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah stood beside him on his right, and to his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malachijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalam. Ezra opened the book of the law in full view of the people, since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, uplifted, all the people said, Amen and Amen. They knelt, down, they knelt low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Messiah, Kelata, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peliah, who were Levites, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to your Lord, to, to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Do, don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration, because they understood the words that were explained to them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scripture that we have. We thank you for the word of God that we can read and see your truth, see who you are, see what you have done and what you are doing, God. And I praise you for all that you have done. And I pray that you would be with us this morning. That your word would cut to our hearts like it cut to the people of Israel on this day. That we would see who you are and that we would rejoice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in this passage, the work has been completed. The people all are there. They stand as, as Ezra reads the Word of God for hours. He's reading Scripture to them. And the Levites come and they interpret and they explain the Word of God to them. And what is their reaction? They are grieved. But he says, do not... Grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. As we're looking at this idea of joy this morning, I think the first question we have to ask is, what is joy? What is joy? There's been this common idea that I wrestled with as I was looking through this sermon, looking through this passage in, in Scripture as it talks about joy, that joy and happiness are distinctly different. That we talk about joy and happiness as though they're different things. And often I've heard it explained that joy is lasting, but happiness is fleeting. When we look at this, we look at these ideas in the Bible, and we look at these ideas today, I want to challenge that notion a little bit and make sure that we don't get too caught up on what we've determined words mean. So the word happiness is very little in the Bible. The word happiness is very little in the Bible. Most of the places you find it are only in the Old Testament. And those places are also places where that word happiness could also be blessed. Right? So, so when a mother that is not able to have a baby, she said, happy am I among women. Where other translations might say, blessed am I among women. Right? So this idea of happiness is going hand in hand with blessed when it's translated in Scripture. And there are no New Testament uses of the word happy. Now joy, on the other hand, joy is much more present in Scripture. So where happiness, depending on the translation you look at, might have 23 examples of the word happy all in the Old Testament, maybe up to 54. There are over 240 uses of the word joy in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. We look at the Bible, we see that joy is used in many ways as being a reaction to something else. 
So at the end of Esther, when, when her people are saved, they are joyful. It says they had joy because of what happened. When, when all of these things happen, when the people in Nehemiah hear the word of, the God, word of God read, they re- rejoice, they have joy. Joy is a reaction to something that has happened. Joy is more than just a deep, abiding contentment. I do think in, in Christian usage of the word joy, it awful, almost has become this idea where joy and peace become synonyms rather than joy and happiness. I think that when people outside of the church use the word happy, what they're actually talking about is what joy is in Scripture. People say, I just want to be happy. Right? They don't just want a fleeting emotion you get. They want peace. They want internal, internal, unshakable joy, something that's worth celebrating. Right? Happy birthday. We're celebrating someone's birthday. It's a joyful thing. So really, I think this idea of happiness and joy being opposed to each other are, are not so true scripturally. What we often in America understand happiness to be is what joy often is. Now, the question we have to ask, like we've asked with our hope and our peace before, is what is the source of your joy? Is your joy found in an unshakable place? Because when we, th- when we think about these things, when we think about happiness or joy, what often happens, if it's placed in the wrong thing, it can be, ne- be easily taken. Just like our peace. When our peace is found somewhere and it's taken away, our peace is gone. We're thrown in- into turmoil. If our joy is placed somewhere that is not found and solid, it can be shaken and taken away. You know, there's this idea that, that we've, you've often heard, and I do agree with, that money cannot buy happiness. Money can't buy joy. I, I did hear uh, someone say one time that they didn't agree with that uh, because money can buy a jet ski. And can you, have you ever seen a sad person on a jet ski? <laughs> but the reality is when you look at what comes after, it can buy you an experience. It can buy you an emotion. But will it last? Will it stay with you? What happens after you get off that jet ski? What happens after you get done with the thing that you think will give you joy, will give you satisfaction? You're left with that deep emptiness inside, seeking something more. But joy truly is an outward expression, a celebration, an excitement, a happiness, a gladness for what has been done. And sometimes in Scripture we see that based on what people have done, when, or, but mostly we see it with what God has done. So as we look at this passage, we need to keep this in mind that joy is an outward expression. It is an emotional expression. It is a celebration. But in this passage we see that the joy of the Lord comes after grief. The joy of the Lord comes after grief. And we're speaking most specifically of the joy of the Lord. Because we were talking about how we can find joy, we can find happiness in things, but it can be taken from us. It can go away. It can be something that we no longer have if it's placed in something that is temporary. But we see that this joy, the joy that comes from the Lord that is unshakable, comes after grief. This is the grief that is, un- is caused by understanding the gospel, by understanding what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about love incarnate, love from God. The love that can only be understood when we first understand our place before God. 
our sinfulness, our brokenness. And in Nehemiah, when they are reading the Word of God, the law of God, the people are weeping. They are undone. They are broken because they see the law of God. They see their lives. They see the lives of of the collective people of Israel and how far they have strayed from what God has called them to be. But what 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 do they say to them then? Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who were there instructing them said to all of the people this day, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to, the Lord, to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. When we understand what God has done, our mourning becomes joy. Just like in Acts chapter 2 that we've looked at. When Peter preaches this message that the Jesus you crucified was the Messiah, they were stricken to the hearts. When when Isaiah is standing before God, he says, I'm undone, a a person of unclean lips. Why does God's word have this effect on people? Why, when they come before a holy God, does it have this effect? Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The reality of, of God's Word is it does not endow us with something that was not, was not already there. It's not like when God's Word is read that you suddenly become guilty. It reveals what existed in the first place. It's like a flashlight that's shown into a dark room. The room was as it was before the light was there. But it revealed what was there. This leak that I had in my house, it's not as though this storm was so destructive that it caused a new problem. In fact, I haven't even been able to figure out what the, where the problem is. But when the rain came enough, the weakness was revealed and there was a leak. In our lives, when we come face to face with God's Word, there will be grief. There will be mourning. Because we realize what's truly there. I don't know how many times you've probably sat in a sermon and, and you may have thought, man, this guy must have, have been like in my head this week. As, he, as he's preaching, it's like, I felt that. Where you're in a sermon and, and you're hearing the Word of God, and you're like, man, this, did, did someone tell him what I'm dealing with? But it's God's Word that goes far beyond anything that man can say or do. It's living and active and cuts like a sword. Reveals what is already there. But as we mentioned last week, with the love of God comes this joy. And I think part of the reason that we we experience this and we go through this is that it's only through knowing how bad things are that we can truly understand just how good God is. How many things of your life have you taken for granted and then when they're taken or almost taken, you realize just what it was you had, just what it was you almost lost. When you come to this place of being undone, of broken before the Lord, you realize just how good He is. You see, the people of Israel, all throughout this story, all throughout the story of, of the people of Israel, they take for granted, misunderstand, forget what God has done. And it's only through a place where they stray, become broken, 
that they truly realize how great God is because even when He is just in destroying them, He does not. He relents. He has grace and forgiveness. I see, I think there's such a great parallel in David. You see, he was at the height of the kingdom of Israel. They, they get a king, Saul, then David comes in and he builds this, this Israel, Israelite nation that has kings after it that eventually falls into the state of sin that leads to the Babylonian exile, that leads to the place where they have to be brought back and rebuild what was destroyed. It's this cycle. Knowing God, not knowing God. And even in David's life we see this cycle. Consider Psalm 30. I will exalt you, Lord, because you have lifted me up and have not allowed my enemies to triumph over me. Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from Sheol. You spared me from those going down to the pit. Sing to the Lord, you his faithful ones, and praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor a lifetime. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. When I was secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you showed your favor, you made me strong, stand strong like a mountain. When you hid your face, I was terrified. I called, Lord, I called you. I sought favor from my Lord. What gain is there in my death if I go to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your truth? Lord, listen and be gracious to me. Lord, be my helper. You turned my lament into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothe me with gladness so that I can sing to you and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. David had multiple times in his life where he experienced mourning. When Saul is trying to kill him and he's hiding in the mountains. When he sinned with Bathsheba and, and the Lord punished him. But what we see here is that through this punishment, through this revealing of who He is, through this mourning, God takes His mourning, His lament, turns it into dancing. He removes His sackcloth, which is what they would put on in their times of mourning, and clothes Him with gladness so that He can sing to you and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise You forever. And this is what we see. The grief that comes before joy leads to celebration. The joy of the Lord leads to celebration. So continuing this idea, we think about the, the time when David brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city. He, he was bringing the, the Ark of the Covenant into the city. There was such a celebration and joyful procession. Every time the people carrying the Ark took six steps, they made a sacrifice. David was leaping, dancing before the Lord. He was so joyful in this passage. Again, we look at verses 10 through 12. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have prepared nothing, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quiet all the people, saying, Be still, since the day is holy. Don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat, drink, send portions, and have a great celebration, because they understood the words that were explained to them. When we understand the fullness of what God has done, it leads to grief, but then it leads to a realization that God has loved you, but it does not just stop there. It leads to celebration, to celebrating the work God has done, to celebrating joyfully what He has done. Following this passage, they, they celebrate the festival of shelters. 
This is what they, they saw in Deuteronomy because they look through the law. They celebrate for days and days and, and they build these shelters and dwell in them and they, sh- they celebrate together all that God has done, all that God is doing. I think we need to consider whether or not we celebrate in our lives the way we see people celebrate in Scripture. Do we celebrate the Lord like David? The place you'll find joy most often is in the Psalms. They're joyfully singing, talking about these great processions, celebrating God. All of the people together celebrating God together. I remember hearing a story from from Francis Chan that he he shared about a time where he was invited to a Lakers game with a friend uh, that went to his church. And they went to this game. This was during the time when Kobe played, and they went, and it was a, a big game, a sold-out stadium, and there was a point in the game where there was somebody threw an alley-oop, and, and Kobe dunked it, and the whole stadium erupted. You may have been in a place like that where you were watching a sporting event or you were a part of something where people just celebrated what was going on. And he, he was celebrating, and he realized the thing. He's like, man, this must be the loudest place on earth right now. And he thought to himself, how sad that the loudest place, the, most, the place where there's the greatest celebration is for a man putting a ball through a cylinder. When we know the Lord, the God who created us, the God who, while we were far off, died for us, saved us, that Jesus came while we're celebrating at Christmas, to come to those who are far off, the the exiles returning to God, as we see in Nehemiah. What was broken being restored. A life that was dead being made new. Do we celebrate the Lord? Do we give Him the praise and the adoration? Is our life characterized by this joy, this celebration of, my goodness, I was about to die. I was headed for destruction. But my God saved me. We see so many scriptural examples of celebration and joy. 1 Kings 1.40 All the people went up after him playing flutes and rejoicing with such a great joy that the earth split open from the sound. So much joy. Psalm 32.11 Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy. All you upright in heart. Over and over we see this loud, exuberant joyfulness expressed toward God because of what He has done. Because of the salvation that's available through the Lord. In the Old Testament, looking towards Jesus and very presently salvation from their enemies. And in the New Testament, we do see a shift in the discussion of joy. It is still a celebration, but it is because of what Jesus has done, and it is the hope in which we come and await. Consider John 16, 19 through 22. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Are you asking one another about what I said? In a little while you will not see me. Again, in a little while you will see me. Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, because the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a, a person has been born into the world.
So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. As Jesus is about to go to the cross to to do what he came to do, to be the sacrifice for us, he tells them, you will mourn. You're going to face hardship. It's going to be difficult. But you will rejoice. And he does say that when you're mourning, the world will be rejoicing. But, and like a woman giving birth to a child, you think about that, how, how difficult labor is, how painful, but immediately there's a celebration because of what has been done. And we feel the pain of being in this world. We feel the hurt. We feel the loss. We feel the sorrow, the brokenness over sin, the brokenness of our own lives. But when we realize what Jesus has done for us, there is joy that is present and available to all believers through the Holy Spirit. Because we realize that what we could not do on our own, Jesus has done for us. We have the victory because of what He has done. We see that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we should be joyful people. And it is found in in our lives with God. And very distinctly in the New Testament, joy is often associated in our relationships with one another. Almost every time that I, I saw the Apostle Paul mention the word joy, his joy is found in what God has done and what God is doing in the lives of those he's ministering to. He says, make my joy complete by following through on what you believed. I have great joy because I've heard about what you've believed. Our joy is not something that's, that's just for us. It is for the group of people, the people of God. In Nehemiah, they celebrated together. They had joy together. We gather together to rejoice together, to have joy in seeing what God is doing in one another's lives, to have joy about what God is doing for His people. We should have great joy. And we also see a shift. In the Old Testament, trials were a direct example of God's judgment. When God had favor on His people, they had joy and they had blessing. We see a shift. The trials that we face are no longer punishment, but something that we should rejoice in. James 1-2, Consider a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. He goes on to say, knowing that that joy will, will, that those trials will help make your joy complete, will help complete you to maturity. 1 Peter 4.13, Instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when His glory is revealed. Why do we rejoice in suffering? Why do we rejoice when we face hardship? Who also suffered? Who suffered in our place? Christ. And if we suffer on behalf of Christ, the the promise that we see from Peter here, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so you may also rejoice with Him with great joy when His glory is revealed. What is to come is where our joy will be revealed. Our joy will be fulfilled. Our hope will be fulfilled. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. This strength is to overcome the grief that we face because of the sin in our lives and to face any challenge we may encounter. 
any hardship, any persecution, anything we face in this life, knowing and realizing what God has done is enough to help us maintain joy in those situations. Now this is where joy and happiness are often most called to differ. Is because even if you have joy, you won't always be expressing it. It's not like you're going to receive the worst news of your life and be celebrating. But internally, there is a joy that cannot be taken. There is a joy that remains. There is a joy that will come again, and you will praise the Lord again. We see with David such a great example of, of a real human life that sought God, that he mourned and he wept when his child died. But afterward, he returned to rejoicing the Lord because God is good and our hope is still sure. It cannot be shaken. Our joy will be complete. We will stand before God. If you have trusted in Christ, you will stand before Him and your joy will be complete. No matter what we encounter, we may not only have the peace that God is with us, we can take peace in knowing that He cares for us and that will fill us with joy. And I think here is where joy and contentment really become hand in hand. When we preached on peace, we, we talked about uh, Philippians chapter 4, and the, the passage that directly follows that really talks about contentment. And he talks about rejoicing. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need, I am able to do all things through Him who strengthens me. Still you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. The Apostle Paul is saying that he had faced hardship but he rejoiced because the people showed care for him. When our joy is not expressed in celebration because of the hardships we face, we express joy through being content because we know that everything we need comes from the Lord. Our joy and our hope and our peace is found in the Lord. And that leads to a contentment that all of these worldly things, all these worldly troubles, these worldly struggles cannot shake. We can be content because the joy of the Lord is what we desire and we do have. If you think about that, that is what it all comes down to. If you are wanting God, who can take Him from you? Who can rob you of that joy? Who can rob you of that goodness? The idea of being spoiled that we mentioned before, but this idea of being spoiled is having so many things that you aren't grateful for and wishing for the thing you don't have. What more can we have other than God? C.S. Lewis said, The very nature of joy makes nonsense of our common distinction between having and wanting. If you have God, who has given Himself to you and for you in Jesus, what else can you want? What else can you need? earthly things, but God cares for you. He will provide for you. And even if He doesn't, as we saw, as we see in the story in Daniel, even if He doesn't, He is still good. And if He doesn't, to, to be 
To, to depart and be with Christ, as Paul said, is far better. But how grateful we should be that we don't often face that difficulty. We don't face often the difficulty of, of facing death because of what we believe. But many do. And they go to the Lord joyfully. There was, there was a man who was a priest in, in, during around the, right before the Protestant Reformation, but he was kind of one of the founding members looking at this idea of following God, of following what God in, says in the Bible, John Hoos. And, and he was burned alive for his faith in Christ, singing hymns of joy as he died. Because he knew the one thing that mattered the one thing that mattered he had and that filled him with joy. This morning, where do you find your joy? As you go through your life, are you a person that people, when they look at you, would say, that person is characterized by joy? When we think about this idea of the incarnation, we're talking about Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And He was hope in the flesh. He was love in the flesh. He was peace in the flesh, joy in the flesh for us. But as Christians, if you are a Christian this morning, in our flesh, we should make manifest the fruits of the Spirit. We should make manifest the hope that we have the, joy, the, the love that we have, the peace that we have, and the joy that we have. We should be joyful people. Because where we find our hope, where we find our peace, where we find our love, our joy is not in things in this world, it is not in people, but it is in God. Is that where you find your joy this morning? Because if it is, nothing can take that from you. No hardship you face, no battle you face, God is with you. He loves you. He cares for you. He is there for you. We can have joy and we should celebrate with joy. Our joy should be celebrated with each other and should extend to others. But this morning, if you don't know the Lord, if you don't have a relationship with Him, if you've never trusted Him as your Savior, if you hear the Word of God and you hear this idea of sin and punishment... And that's scary for you. It produces a, a, a reaction of, will God, will God really punish sin? He will. But the good news is that Jesus Christ died in your place so that you could be made right with God. And, and the guilt and the shame that you feel, this, this desire for something more is found and only found in Jesus Christ and what He did for you what He did on your behalf so that you could be made right with God. And if you're here this morning, and, and maybe no one else knows it, but internally, you're mourning, you're grieving, because you know when you look at the law of God, you're condemned. And you're mourning and you're grieving like the people in Nehemiah. Turn to the Lord for your salvation this morning. Confess to God that you're a sinner. Admit or believe that Christ died for you. Confess Him as your Lord and Savior. During this time, we're going to have a time of invitation. 
And the altar is open for your prayer this morning. If you need to go to the Lord in prayer, I'll be down here that you can pray with me if there's anything that you need to pray for in your life. And I'm here if you need to accept Christ as your Savior. To turn to Him. But also, celebrate with joy during this time. If you are a believer and you know Him, and you're convicted of the lack of joy in your life, express in joyfulness now. Do not mourn, but rejoice at what Christ has done for you. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this day that You've given us and this joy that we can have through You. Father, I pray that You would be with us this morning, that You would help us to rejoice and to celebrate You because of what You have done for us. Father, I pray that if any here do not know You, that today would be the day they come to salvation. They come to know You. And and as the Bible says, that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who is saved. Father, we thank You. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and celebrate the Lord together.